0: No, not word at all. I rely
1: on God, Allah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalam, a'la rasulillah. Assalamu wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. We welcome you to the United Islam Awareness Week 2022. With the theme this year being Come Back Home, we will be introducing our beloved guest speaker, Uh, Ustad Abdullah is an international speaker, thinker, and intellectual activist in Islam and on Muslim affairs. His work involves explaining and demonstrating by rational argument the intellectual proofs of the Islamic belief system and promoting the Islamic way of life and Islamic institutions for today's contemporary problems. And that is just the exact theme for this year's United Islam Awareness Week. So before I pass the mic to my uh, beloved uh, Sheik here, um, I would just like to introduce his topic, House on Fire, How Islam Can Resolve Conflicts from Modernity. So without further ado, Sheik, take it away. Brother,
0: not Sheik, milk (laughs) Sheik. Okay, can everyone hear me okay? (laughs) Bismillah <laughs> ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, As-Salatu Salaamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So, it's my um, honor and pleasure to be back in Edmonton and back in Canada generally, especially since COVID hit. And for, I, I heard there's all these uh, horror stories about going through the airport and all the kinds of testing they do. and all kinds of forms and papers, but for some reason, they didn't notice me. Um, so I just sneaked through. It was actually one of the smoothest entries into Canada ever. I was like, um, I, I, I don't want to uh, uh, Was it spoil it if they, people see this. I said, oh, really? We'll make it hard for you next time. <laughs> but um, it's my, I want to thank NYM Inc. for the, organizing this, um, this conference and for the, the Centre for hosting it. Uh, today's topic will be how Islam can resolve conflicts from modernity. It, none of the topics will be controversial, but some may find it controversial. And so, I suppose the organisers chose "House on Fire" to represent—not uh, a metaphor, but perhaps what the house would reflect after this conference ends—for um, those who might have issues with it. But um, there should be nothing to be found issue with, because it, it will be 100% factual. And it's very important for us to be as objective as possible to discuss these issues and at least come at them from an honest perspective. So. Modernity promised everybody to be the age of unity for humanity, an age of reason where people can resolve their conflicts by discussions and diplomacy. Of course, modernity has been anything but. We've seen the worst wars in human history occur in the last 100 years. Well, uh, let's let's say 105 years, so you can capture World War I. Um, All because of modernity. They they used industrialization to make weapons of war, mass scales, bombs to flatten cities, of course, nuclear weapons. And just recently, modernity strikes again with Russia invading Ukraine. Um, But it's not as just as simple as Russia invading Ukraine, there's obviously a number of circumstances behind that. So the question is, what can we Muslims learn about how to resolve these situations from our deen? And what is the cause of conflicts? In the, in the world today, not just in the, amongst non-Muslims, but also amongst Muslims, and how can we resolve those with the application of Islam. But I'm not only going to talk about international and political situations, I'm also going to talk about the situations that Muslims find themselves in, in the West, where we are surrounded in, a, in, a, in an environment which is ideologically um, contrary to some of the values that we believe in. And I mean, ideologically contrary, is in that we are being taught and told in our schools and in colleges and universities, on media, um, certain values that we have to uphold um, as a prerequisite, sometimes for seeking our rights, or they, they tell Muslims that if you want to seek your civil rights as a Muslim, you have to come with, these, uh, with the uh, particular wordings and values and ideas that we, we, we teach you. We have to use our currency to get to cash in for your rights. Uh, But unfortunately, in the process, Muslims end up selling out their deen in the process. So um, without further ado, let's just basically go straight into the first one. The sources of conflict. Okay, So we'll be discussing um, folk modern ideologies. And we'll be showing you how what they're based upon, the ideas which are behind them, and how they cause conflict in the world today amongst Muslims, amongst non-Muslims, generally speaking. So, some very spicy topics up there, and we're going to go through all of them. Um, So, the first one will be nationalism. So, people often misunderstand nationalism. They think that nationalism is simply that you identify as being part of a ethno-linguistic group of whichever background you're from. That's not nationalism. Nationalism is the idea that your particular ethno-linguistic group has a privileged right to determine the laws and rules of a particular geographic area of land. And and then by the, the corollary of this is that other ethnic groups don't have that same right to determine the laws and rules of any particular piece of geographic location. Now you might think, well, yeah, that, that sounds quite obviously racist. But people don't understand that when they're talking about their current, let's say, conflicts and events. So they say, for example, I'm going to take, I'm just going to pick a few at random. I could pick any example, but I'm going to pick some from the Muslim world if you'd like, and I'll pick some from the West currently. So, for example, in um, Turkey, right, there's a dispute as to, well, does, the, does Turkey represent the nation of the Turks? Or should it include all citizens, including Kurds? Kurds, Some Kurds might argue that they deserve a independent state that represents Kurds. But you ask, why would you want a state that represents Kurds? What interests do Kurds have that are different from any other human being on planet Earth? Do do Kurds not need to eat? Do they not need to drink water? Do they not need to have you know electricity or energy supplies and so on and so forth? And they say, oh no, because we can't trust other ethnic groups uh, to honour our rights and uh, treat us fairly, and so we need to, we need to have a state to, on a piece of land which we view to be our ancestral homeland and to have the privilege to basically dictate the rules of that, which then means that those who are, who are minorities and there are minorities on the lands claimed to be Kurdistan, like Turkomans, for example, and some Arabs, um, have complained of discrimination. And again, the cycle repeats, there are minorities within minorities within minorities and every area of land has a minority, has a majority, and the cause of this dispute is simply when people ask the question, if a state represents a nation, then which nation is represented? So if, there's a, if we should have a state that, is, that represents a nation, which nation's interests are represented by that state? And you might think to yourself, well, isn't a nation just anyone in an arbitrary border, for example? Well, no, because the idea of a nation, it means anyone who speaks a particular language or has something which defines them and makes them slightly different from anyone else, although it is arbitrary, by the way, because... And to give you another example, again, controversial, um, you have, in after colonialism, You had Italy colonized Somalia, and you had Britain colonized Somalia, and simply based on these two colonial powers, which part of Somalia they colonized, you now have Somalia and Somaliland. What's the difference between the the Somalis of Somaliland and the Somalis of Somalia? Same religion, same language, right? There's not a different language that I'm aware of, or different food, different clothing perhaps? Nope. So, but simply because of a very slight difference in, in history, and it's due to colonizers, they now view themselves as somehow different. Right? And, it, and nationalism actually is arbitrary because where do you draw the line? What makes some, one group a different nation to another group, um, especially those who speak the same language? Does, does England and Canada view itself as the same nation anymore? Right? Well, no, even though they speak English. But even within Canada, you have French speakers and English speakers, and the French-speakers don't very much like being dominated by English-speakers, right? so they have to ask for autonomy. Right? Nationalism, and of course, although I can give you so many other examples, Ethiopia, right? the Tigray, don't like being dominated uh, by the majority group in Ethiopia. They had a civil war, they're, they're now um, winning, uh, but uh, you have the Oromo people in Ethiopia, and of course you have Somalis in the south, um, all these conflicts based on who does a state represent. But why should the state need to, uh, need to have a concept of who it represents? Surely it just is, is, should be an administrative system that administrates to any human being within its jurisdiction, doesn't really care whose interests should be administrated. But nationalism was the idea that states represent peoples and peoples are defined as usually an ethnolinguistic group because why have a border in the first place? If you have borders, that means there has to be a difference between people. And, and so, in the 19th century, the Europeans came up with the idea of nationalism. They thought it was actually a more enlightened way to divide the world. They said, instead of empires, where well, you have one dynasty that controls multiple peoples of different ethnic groups, which was the norm in history. Um, or in history, people usually had tribes. Like, just because you're from the same ethnic group, doesn't mean that you'd unite with, your tribes would unite with each other. They'd usually fight each other, They'd fight their neighbors before they fight, you know, foreigners, right? So like the ancient Greeks, they all spoke Greek, but they all had many wars against each other. They didn't care about, oh, we all fellow Greeks. They didn't care about that, um, to, to make a one nation uh, concept. It's, it's really brand new, the idea of nationalism. It's very, it's a, it's a Western ideology. But racism does come from it because the idea of nation is based on ethnicity, right? So th- there's always going to be that. And even in countries which are, you could say, artificial, um, nations, ones which were created from a variety of ethnic groups, there's still racism in those countries. Why? Because usually a particular country was formed by one particular, people that come from one particular ethnicity, and so they'll always say, we or our ancestors were the founders of this particular country, and you all have to respect the traditions of the founders of this country, which is English, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, well, they call wasps white Anglo-Saxon Protestants yeah. in in North America and in in Canada and so on, all such places and Australia as well. Um, but of course, um, even in Ukraine and Russia, which everyone is now wondering, like, what's going on there? What most people didn't realize is that again, this doesn't justify what Russia did, but um, there are Russian speakers in Ukraine. There was a, uh, a kind of a peaceful revolution that occurred in Ukraine in 2014, and people voted in uh, new members of the parliament. And that included popularists, those who were basically, let's say, a little bit ultra-nationalist Ukrainians. And these ultra-nationalist Ukrainians wanted to push a law to, um, to, to cease recognizing Russian as a minority language, just it's no longer officially recognized by, by the state. Right? The minority Russian speakers, obviously, they're not going to like that very much because they said, you're in, a, you're in Ukraine, you speak Ukrainian. It's slightly different from Russian for those of you who don't know the difference between Ukrainian and Russian. And this, uh, of course, Putin doesn't, didn't have a bleeding heart for his fellow Russian speakers around the world, but he used that as a pretext. Uh, to then help the, um, the Russian speakers who wanted to say, well, we want autonomy. He said, okay, I'll, you know, why don't you ask for autonomy? I'll help you. <laughs> and the rest becomes history, right? So there was, in essence, Ukrainian kind of almost fascists that were trying to take over, uh, that were coming to power, being voted into power. Uh, not all of them, not the majority, but there were a minority of them who were basically, who were um, even some neo-Nazis actually a uh, minority of the, of the, the uh, Ukrainian political parties, but that sparked off a almost an F, um, ethno-linguistic conflict or a conflict of nations within Ukraine uh, with a minority group, which is the Russian speakers. And of course, um, India is also a very big example, a right? Re- very recent example. You might say, Abdullah, but I don't understand India because India has multiple ethnic groups, multiple languages. Yes, it does, and that's also an irony of it is that it shouldn't be one nation, technically speaking. But the reason why it's one nation is all thanks to yet again British colonialism and Britain just saying, well, this whole area, uh, yeah, all of you kind of look the same to us. You're one people, kind of. Well, apart from you, Muslims. Yeah, we, we, we've seen your religion elsewhere. We know your religion is not from India, right? And that kind of caused the, uh, the the viewpoint of people from Al Hind to see each other as different. The idea of the Hindu becomes born on the the uh, British rule, because there was no name for people who were pagans or polytheists. Um, like, you know, the Arabian polytheists. What was the name of their religion? They didn't call themselves Arabus or Arabianists, right? They didn't call themselves that, right? There was no name for their religion, right? Much like the Greeks didn't have a name for their religion, pagans don't pagans don't really have a name for their religion. It's just they follow all the random things they do. But you can thank the British for giving them a uh, for giving uh, the polytheists of Hind. A common name identity, which was the Persian word for any form for person who 's from al hind Hindu just means is the Persian word for someone who 's from india that 's it technically speaking if you 're going to speak Persian, um, all people from al hind Muslim, Sikh, Christian uh, and polytheist are all Hindu uh, you technically speaking right it 's a, a Persian word or you want use the Arabic word you can, Hindi if you like right? but now it's being attached to only polytheists. And, and that makes everyone who's not Hindu a foreigner, even if they are genetically, ethnically, ancestrally, just from the, the same part of that place as anybody else around them. Right. So if you want to stop the, the conflicts in the world today, nationalism needs to go. And again, it is a recent concept. Right? Before this, People either saw themselves united under kings or, or dynasties, different ethnic groups under one dynasty. It was normal, um, or they were in uh, their, their own tribes. But generally speaking, or, or kings, um, or they were they had um, city states back in the day. But the idea of nationalism—it's a brand new concept. It's a a type of asabiyya, which is the Arabic word for grouping, groupism, which is the the West thought was a more enlightened asabiya, if they say, let's just pick language as the main um, criteria for how people, how we're gonna divide the world. And of course, the problem is that the world is not that clean cut, because there's always minorities. There's, there's people intermixing with each other. People live intermixed with each other all the time. So wherever you draw the border, guaranteed there are minorities in that, in that state, and guaranteed at some point those minorities are going to be discriminated against, because people always have a preference for their own ethnolinguistic group, or their own group, of any kind of group, whether it's a tribe, whether it's family, whether it's whatever. Everyone has a, a tendency or preference. People often say religion, religion causes most of the wars today, uh, or religion is a cause of war. They, they keep going on about it. I say, tell me how many wars, and when was these wars caused by religion? Tell me how long ago was it, and how many of them were. Right? You can count them on, a, on your hand within the last. the 400 years? Yeah, and you have to go back 400 years right, to, to, for a war that was based on religion. Very rare, in fact, very rare. How many wars are based on nationalism? Uh, you, you have to bring out a couple of notebooks up and you <laughs> write long lists because the greatest number of people have died in the world today in wars is because of, of nationalism, for colors of flags which are usually arbitrary. Inve- many of them invented, many of them brand new. And of course, the Muslim world is rife with this. One of the examples is, which illustrates it the, the best, is um, just how Arabs are divided. You know? So you had people that are living in Al Sham. Now, in Arabic parlance, the watan, watan is a land. It refers to a physical geographical location, watan. So people say Abdullah. But isn't there like a hadith that says, um, you know, uh, hubul watan, like love of your of the land is part of your faith? Now, some people say it's daif, but Let's accept it. Let's just say it's sahih. What was the context of that hadith? Because there's other hadith where the Rasulullah said that he had a love for Medina, but he wasn't from Medina. Right? He wasn't born in Medina, right? It was just he loved the land. You can love land. You you can love the you know that the Rockies look quite nice, yeah. I love the way they look. I'd like to go on you know uh, on them one day. Hint hint. Yeah. But does it mean now that I'm gonna um, I'm going to identify politically or if part of my identity with the Rockies is just because I love them. Right? That's how it's ridiculous. Um, Al-Sham is a watan, but one land, uh, as in one geographical unit. But it's divided into um, Lebanon, into Syria, into Jordan, and into Palestine before um, Palestine was usurped further. Was usurped further. It's the idea of these countries are arbitrary because people who are Shami, Shami Arabs, roughly will have similar cultures to each other, or the, pretty much the same. Um, and accents slightly different, but not so, not so different compared to Iraqis or, or those from uh, Masr, right? those from Egypt. But yet, Since the colonialism came and new flags and new boundaries, many of these boundaries were put between families, so families were kept apart because a new boundary was put between them. Suddenly, they're two different nations now. It's completely arbitrary. But see how Muslims adopted it, these flags, adopted these identities, and now they they have kibr on these, they have pride in these identities, even though you didn't even choose it. Why are you having pride on something you didn't even choose? You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Right? At least if you're going to, at least have pride for something you, you achieved or accomplished, like you got a PhD or something, then all right. I mean, even then, you, you know, you're not have, you're meant to have kibbutz. but at least I could understand that better than having, being, having pride in something you didn't choose at all whatsoever. Um, and Asabiyah, they have groupism, right? even though Muslims are meant to be one family. Uh, next slide, please. So, for, for those of you who are interested to see the intellectual origins of uh, nationalism as a formalized concept, the uh, a German, uh, German Enlightenment thinker, Johann Gottfried Herder, he talked about how nations are defined very much particularly by languages. Um, he, he called it inclinations and chara- characters each formed, he felt, by the climates of each nation that they were living in. The climate made their character, but they are defined particularly by their language. So that was when he first posited the idea of nations um, being uh, separate. And then the French Revolution gave the idea of getting rid of a king. And once you get rid of the king, you have a parliament or a a, a type of representational government or democracy representing the people, which people, the nation of the French speakers, the Franks. So it's no longer about dynasty, rule of the king of, of France, because as you, if anyone looks in European history, the, the king of France has owned parts of Italy in the past, the king of Spain has owned parts of Holland. <laughs> right? In the, the, in, the, in the medieval world, kings could own all kinds of land of different language speakers, not a problem, that was just how it was. Right. It was mixed, and everyone was united underneath the regime, basically, in the age of kings. Um, the Islamic concept, obviously, of Khilafah, was one where we had one imam, but over a number of different Muslims and non-Muslims of different ethnic groups. But ethnicity was irrelevant in in the in, in, the, um, in Islamic teaching, and where those those Muslims who were not very well practising, like the Umayyads, who did try to make it relevant because they didn't want to they didn't want um, new converts to stop paying jizya tax because the zakat they don't have much control on where it goes. But the Jizya tax, they have some control, so they wanted to keep that money going, so Persians would become Muslim and they say, sorry, we don't recognize um, your, your conversion, you're Persians, you're not Arabs anyway, so who cares. Well, there was a revolution that kicked them out and that rectified the matter because these, the Persian Muslims said this is against Islam. Right? So it got, re- it got rectified <laughs> because it was against Islam. And of course, um, since the French Revolution, and then Napoleon Bonaparte became a dictator, and took over France, and then his conquest of Germany actually, again, lit the spark throughout Europe of of people looking at themselves as Germans, as French, as uh, Belgians first, and having, uh, or desiring a country that represents their ethno-linguistic group. And then it starts spreading around the world, especially after colonialism, Um, but again, in many cases, the British made artificial countries, like India is an artificial country. It was never, never in the history of, of India has it ever been one country defined by one people. Yes, you've had empires that have taken large tracts of land of India, like the Maura Empire, but they took parts of Persia as well, right? It was just one dynasty, an empire. It takes over land, like Roman Empire, it takes over lots of land. doesn't mean that the Mediterranean people are one people just because the, the Romans control all the Mediterranean coast, right? So this is something that we have to reject. Next slide. The Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says he is not one of us who calls to, now the Arabic word he says Asabiya, but people translate the translation in English that you usually get, they say just tribalism. So Muslims, when you read it, you think, well, I don't, I don't really care about my tribe anymore. But, although some Muslims actually do care about their tribe at um, for those who still follow it. Um, but the word is Asabiya, and the, the word Asabiya is a general word. It's a general word. It means grouping, any grouping. So it would apply not just to those who, who in the past would be um, loyal only to their tribe, and would, be, uh, and would only bond with their, with their fellow tribal members against everybody else, but it, would, it can apply to nationalism today as the modern Asabiya. But we have to recognize Asabiya when we see it. And the, the Rasulullah wasallam said, he's not one of us who fights for the sake of Asabiya, he's not one of us who dies for the sake of Asabiya, which means, it's quite strong, it means that you're not one of what? Well, you're not one of who? The Muslims. You've done Khuruj of the Muslims. If you view yourself as part of anything other than the Ummah, and that the Ummah, that you believe in any other political unit that you are, um, that you are uh, bonded to, you are loyal to, beyond the ummah. Now, when I say by loyal, I want to kind of caveat this. It doesn't mean that, that you are you act in a criminal fashion in any land you go to, or because you're not, Oh, you, you, I don't have to be loyal to you. No, 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 because you have to obey what you promised to obey, right? So if you promised, you make an agreement to enter a country, you ha- that agreement is an amana, you have to honor the terms of that contract, which is you have to abide by um, the stipulations of whatever... Um, uh, criminal civil code, they require, as long as they don't command you to do something as haram, uh, then it's like contract. It's like a contract, basically. You have to honor the terms of your contract. So, as a citizen, you have a contract with the state and you have to honor the terms of the contract. Not out of loyalty, but because we, ha- as Muslims, we must honor our contracts. Right? But loyalty, right? so who you, uh, who you care about in terms of um, wanting to defend in terms of the common affairs that you see. So if someone across the world in India is being oppressed for wearing the hijab, we view that not as, oh, that's, you know, some foreigners who are having that oppression. It's sad, you know, I feel for them, but, you know, some foreigners... No, that's, that's our families, our people, and it's our affairs. It might as well be us that are being oppressed for manifesting signs of Islam. Right, right here, it's the same, that's how we view it, as one affair. Our peace is one, our war is one, and our affairs are one. That's how Muslims are meant to see ourselves as an ummah. Islam has two concepts to solve this problem of nationalism and asabiyyah. One is the concept of Bani Adam, that all human beings are all part of the same tribe. So if you want to be tribalist, okay, be tribalist, but we're all part of the same tribe. There's no of the tribe than Bani Adam, which means we're all cousins. Right? But not just as in a religious or a belief, but also it's we're meant to believe in it literally, and science has confirmed that. We are all cousins. We're all genetically related. Right? So that's been confirmed by science. And many people I was encountering, um, some people that say, uh, you know, our philosophy treats everyone as one family, the whole world as one family. I say, well, that's great. If you, like, if you say that you should treat the world as one family, but we literally believe the world as one family. We literally believe it. That's actually the actual case. It's not like a, a, an ideal sentiment for us. It's just fact, right? So Islam simply tells us a fact, which is you're all from Bani Adam, right? And Adam salam actually w- w- was weeping when he, w- when he saw that many of his, of his children would be going to Jahannam, right? Would be going, will falling into, into um, hell for their sins and wickedness. So he views us as his family, as his descendants. His, so we should view each other as, as the very least cousins, because that's what we, we are. But the second concept is if everyone is a cousin, which means non-Muslims are our cousins, and of course we have that concern like we would to our, to our cousins for non-Muslims. We, we don't want to see them suffering. We don't want to see them suffering injustice or oppression. But when we view, the, when we view Muslims, it's close to family. It's ummah, from the root word um, in Arabic, meaning mother. Right? We, it's not. We're not like a comb, a nation or a political unit. We are a family, close family, in fact. So as much as you defend your close family if they're being attacked, if someone's attacking your brother, your sister, your your father, mother, so on, we would defend each other across the world, wherever we are. And if Muslims reminded themselves of this concept. Then you would cease to see the borders between the Muslim world, and of course the Quran also says, uh, the Quran commands that be not divided amongst yourselves. Right? People, many Muslims when you read it think, is it just a, a, a woolly sentiment, just a, uh, an ideal? No, no, it's for practical implementation. By the way, the Quran is practical. Unless anyone dares say the Quran isn't practical, the Quran is saying, don't be divided. And what was what was fascinating was. Someone asked uh, Abdullah because they've, they've heard me talk about the Islamic obligation to re-establish khilafa, which all the classical there's ijma across every madhab on the matter. The establishment of the um, of the political office of the, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu the successorship to it, it's called khilafa, is an obligation. They say, but why don't we see khilafa mentioned in the Quran? Why don't we see it say khilafa is an obligation? You must have a Khalifa. Why is that not in the Qur'an? And I say, because the Qur'an is a book of wisdom. And I say, I don't understand, Abdullah. Is that, are you contradicting yourself? I say, no. If the Qur'an had said, Muslims must have a caliph, Muslims might treat that as a ritual office, like a, a figurehead office, like the Pope. The Pope has no political power. Right? And... Many, ch- many of the Christian churches have fought with each other based on who should be the pope or who should be the head of the church, but not to have any real political power, just symbolic. And there are people today, like, for example, even though the, the Ahmadiyya, even though their belief in a new prophet after Rasulullah Rasul already excludes them from um, uh, what we will call the fold, because they basically contradict the verse of Quran that says that the, the Rasulullah is Khatam and Nabi. However, they say, oh, yes, you know, you have to give bayah to our Khalif because, you know, he's, the, he, he's a Khalif. Say, so, like, what makes him a Khalif? Like, e- even if we, we let's, we'll look past the glaring doctrinal differences here, we'll look past that for the sake of argument. What makes him a Khalif? Oh, because, you know, we give him bayah. It's like, does he have any political power? Does he have any... Um, you know, government or office or anything like this, of where he can actually offer governmental services. And, and as the Hadith of the Rasulullah s.a.w. said, the Imam is the shield behind which the Ummah fight and defend itself. Which means, as a minimum, the Imam has to be able to defend the Ummah or at least give very good defence to the Ummah. So it has to—it's a political capacity to itself. Well, obviously not. But then it's just like anyone could call himself caliph, then, isn't it? And it means nothing. You know, like oh, there's some guy called Bob can call himself caliph, and, that, and that's it. Now he becomes caliph, right? I- ironically, the, the, the irony was, was just like with um, with with Daesh as well. They randomly call one of their guys caliph. Does oh, that make it caliph? Well, no, right? Because again, that, like if the caliph can't is too scared to go out in public because he'll get bombed, don't think he's assured for anyone. If he can't be assured for himself, and, and that's just the, the tip of the iceberg of the criticisms I have with of that, but just to give you an example. So then what did the Quran, why is the Quran not use the word Khalif? Because it wants you to achieve a state, not just a name. It says, be not divided amongst yourselves. Get to the situation where you're not divided amongst yourselves. That's If it looks like that, great, you've met the commandment. But how do you achieve that? Well, the only way you can have political unity is under one leadership. You can't have multiple different states, each sovereign, each separate, but say, yeah, we're all unified. But no, that's not unity. Even in a federal system, you have to have a federal government that provides unity, even if it gives some devolved powers to the, uh, its constituent states. So in Islam, the basis for unity isn't One where we say all Muslims must believe the same opinions because that's never going to happen. Not even the Sahabas agreed with each other. So if if they can't achieve it, how how, how can we achieve it? That's not the basis of unity. Unity is that our affairs are one, and our war is one, and our peace is one, and that can only be when we have one leader. But don't get too focused on who the leader is. Get focused on the situation we need to create. That's the hikmah of the Quran and why it doesn't say the, 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 the uh, khalafah is Fard. Otherwise Muslims would, would be fighting over just getting anyone called a Khalifa. Rather, and ignoring and missing out watching the actual end result you need to achieve. Yeah. And of course the Quran says, rule by what Allah has revealed. So if you have Muslims not divided, ruling by what Allah has revealed, these are the two definitions of the khilaf, That's what khalafah is. That's it. C- call it what you want. Imam, you know, uh, Sultaniya, whatever you want to call it. That end result achieved that 's that's we that 's what the, it's the, the Quran commands so that 's how Muslims can deal with nationalism. Uh, next slide. so now going to the west, um, liberalism, what is liberalism? You hear it quite a lot, but what does it refer to? liberalism isn't just simply you can do whatever you want because. Well, clearly, you can't do whatever you want in these countries. Well, the fact that you're wearing masks means you can't do whatever you want, um, but the Canadian government will say that's, that's meant to be reasonable, um, reasonable protections. But there's a bit more than just uh, enforcing masks. In fact, almost every day in the UK Parliament, a new law is passed. Every single day, a new law, and each law is a new restriction. So how do you have a free country when there's... Every day, new restrictions are being passed by most legislatures, most governments. Why do they call it free? Well, before I discuss that, we'll go to what the, defin- the definitions of the, or the acida of liberalism is. So I just gave you two quotations from John Locke. I'm not going to read them out to you. But simply, uh, John Locke argued that he believed that in a state of nature before government, all human beings were individuals free individuals was roaming around the wilderness doing whatever they wanted as individuals which is historically not true because we know from all the archaeological evidence we can ever find um and uh, of of early uh, kind of human migrating tribes and and communities that at a very minimum even in the neolithic age a kind of human group might be 30 individuals not one not individuals just roaming around by themselves you need, you need a support network People get sick. You need support. You need, you know, if if you're not able to, to uh, you might hurt yourself. You need someone to look after you, uh, and then you can then reciprocate that. Humans form, um, kind of form, um, uh, groups of people that can mutually help each other. It's natural, right? Tribi- basic tribal units is natural to be forming. But based on that assumption, they con- he concluded that all human beings own themselves all human beings are sovereign over themselves which means that in an if nature in nature you're an individual this means that uh, the universe intends you to be the the god of yourself basically for want of a better way of looking at it i call it the toheed of liberalism where where the only god is the one individual <laughs> every individual is his own god right? that's i call it it's toheed. And you might think, Abdullah, isn't that a bit extreme? Because no one ever told me that living in a liberal country, per se. Well, they don't say it like this. Uh, Well, in some ways they do. They say, you own yourself. Your body is your property, right? It belongs to you. Your body belongs to you. Uh, Your life, your choice. Now, we're not saying that humans should be denied choice. But we're simply saying, pointing out that the doctrine that humans are absolute controllers of themselves is the belief that underpins all these things that you see in, um, in the West. Uh, next slide, please, brother. Now, I'm not going to give you loads of quotes. I'm going to give you nice, short bullet points right, to make it nice and digestible. So, liberalism posits, posits that individual humans are the owners of themselves. This is called individualism. You might think, well, why is that so important? Uh, well, it's very important to, for Muslims because it has certain implications. It's not just about how the laws are made, but the morals behind the laws, which you're expected and you, you're pressured, and your kids are being pressured uh, and being taught that this is normal, this is universal, this is how it is, and it's how humans should be. The moral implication is that good and bad is decided purely based on respecting everyone's self-ownership. right? And you might think, well, I mean... Sure, like if this means that we don't go and kill people, or we don't go and thieve from people, even though well, thieving is technically not, um, not their body's property, all the property outside of the body, but surely then we agree with that. Well, yes, we agree that you can't commit murder, and you can't thieve, of course, and, and rape and all this stuff. You can't do any of those things, of course, but we have a different basis for why that is wrong. Their basis is that you are transgressing the individual's ownership of, of, over themselves. Uh, and you might say, it's not splitting hairs, perhaps. No. Do you know why? Because on that basis, they'll turn around to you and they say, why does your God say that same-sex marriage is wrong or same-sex intercourse is wrong when two consenting adults who both own themselves consent to engage in that with each other? What's wrong with that then? And then they'll turn around to the Quran and the Bible, and the Tanakh, the Jewish um, Bible, and they'll turn around to all these and say, yeah, these are all unjust. These are all unfair. Because why can't individuals who own themselves decide what to do with their own property? That's how they argue it. Of course, our response is, do you own yourself, really? Did you make yourself? Did you create yourself? In some ancient cultures, they used to believe that the parents owned the child because the par- they would say that the parents made the child, so the child belongs to the parent, even to adulthood still. Own- it was the property of the parents in ancient cultures. Um, I would say that we don't believe that, but they at least they have some basis to say that. They have some argument, right? It's not our perspective, right? We say. Who made everything in this universe? Who made everything in this universe? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, we say, um, I'll, I'll tell you why certain types of, not just same sex intercourse, but intercourse outside of marriage, you know, or, or extramarital intercourse is, is also wrong. I'll tell you why. Um, because you don't have the permission, the consent of the owner of the body. All right? Who? That's our basis. He owns everything. And he doesn't just make humans and then, and then humans are now self sufficient and now he just just watches them and tells them what to do now. No, no, no. He's still sustaining us every, um, every plank unit of time, if not, and smaller, smallest moment, right? Or, or maybe not even the smallest. He's sustaining our existence. So, he not only does he own us, but he, without him sustaining us we couldn't sustain ourselves so not only does he have the rights over us because he created us but that right is um is constantly reinforced by the fact that he's sustaining us so that's how we would argue back we don't accept the liberal premise don't accept the liberal premise or basis many muslims try to argue back accepting the liberal premise and it ends up with um, when they try they to say, oh, Islam is liberal. Oh, did you know that, that the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu 1400 years ago, gave rights to women? Well, yes, but not because of individualism, right? not because of liberalism, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed that all insan will have rights and duties upon each other, over each other. That's why. Right? So the, the liberal will argue that all morality that doesn't respect individualism is wrong, and if you don't engage that, if you don't nip it in the bud, that will be a thorn against um, our belief, and your children will be told this idea, they'll accept it, the idea of, you know, as long as it's consensual, everything's okay, and then they will open up the Qur'an and they will be um, horrified because they are looking it through a liberal lens and not through a true lens. And of course, there's political um, implications. They argue that all political systems that do not base themselves on individualism are extremist. I tell Muslims, don't use the word extremist. Because when liberal says extremist, they mean that it's okay to have religion if you're just praying in your masjid. But if you're saying that God has something to say outside the masjid, this is going over the had, the liberal had, the liberal boundaries. And they say it's extreme. So when Muslims use that word against each other, you don't know that you're reinforcing what the liberals are saying. The liberals are saying, yes, yes, great. Yes, call each other extreme. You're all extreme. <laughs> right? Yeah? Like, demonstrate you're not extreme by giving the bayah to liberal aqidah. Uh, by, by testifying that there's, there's no ilah except the individual, right? That's that's their um, that's their that's their, aqeed, that's their uh, ta'wheed. Theological implications. You think, okay, Abdullah, liberalism is a political ideology, right? What's, what do you mean by theological implications of um, liberalism? Well, you've heard the term secular liberalism, right? Have you ever wondered why it had the word secular in front of it? Like, why do you call it liberalism? Why do you have to add secular liberalism? Well, that's because uh, Liberalism, secular liberalism has a, li- has, a, has a twin brother called religious liberalism. Religious liberalism is simply applying the same doctrine into theology. So they would argue that a, relig- a religious liberal will argue that Jahannam, hell, is unjust unless it's only for those who commit murder and commit rape, because that is haram according to liberalism, so they can understand that. But even then they'll say, oh, but it can't be Forever, because that's more punishment than the, than it took to make the crime, according to liberal standards. So they'll say it's limited, you know, hell will be for a limited time, and it's only for those who commit murder. They'll say only for bad people. What they mean by that is just people who commit murder and rape and um, you know killing and so on and so forth. But they'll say, but someone going Jahannam for committing shirk, which is the worst crime from the Islamic perspective. They'll say, that's unjust. They're an individual. If they're not hurting anybody, why is Allah punishing them? In fact, taking this logic um, to its its kind of natural conclusion, they'll say, that actually, why does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even give us commands? Aren't we individuals? Don't you own yourself? So why is he interfering like an interloper? This is how they argue it. They view him as an interloper who's interfering in your lives because According to them, you own yourself. So if you own yourself, who is someone else to tell you what to do? Right. That's the logic, and then they become atheists. And when you hear people who are ex-Muslim, they use the argument. They say, why is this? They, they use the word tyrant, they use the word nasty words against Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of their ignorance or out of their, their um, insincerity and kufr. And they say that, oh, he's a tyrant over us because why is he telling us what to do? Why does he care what we're doing? So we're not bothering him. Again, liberal f- um, assumption. That li- in liberalism, you don't bother in- your neighbor unless your neighbor's bothering you. So they say, if how I want to pray or who I want to pray to, if I don't even want to pray at all, why does that bother the creator? Why is he going to punch me for that? That is because the Akita of liberalism makes them think that way. So if you don't deal with it, it will deal with you. But more, but more likely, it will deal with your kids. Right? And you'll see them escape your grasp like sand coming out your fingers. Because you thought, well, you know, Islam is, uh, is, is, is the haqq, so it, it should like, sell itself. Yeah? Well, you know, you go put the Qur'an on a chair. This is uh, Imam Ali's test to the Khawaraj. You go put, a Quran the, you get, you, you put the Qur'an on the chair and let it rule. You put the Qur'an on a chair and let the Qur'an give da'wah. No, it needs you to read it to people. In fact, the Quran actually became, uh, started out not as a book, a physical book that was bound together in leather, right? Started out as what was recited. Yeah. So just because we're upon the haqq doesn't mean that people are going to realize that or notice it. It relies on you to explain that. Um, next slide, please. Now, for those who, who don't know what feminism is, feminism, where, how it started out was simply that in the West, when they, let's say, came up with liberalism, they gave, uh, they gave these, these rights, uh, uh, these protected rights against tyrannical government to, to individuals, but only to, to men, individual men. Ironically spe- speaking, many of the Anglo-Saxon liberals they viewed themselves as empiricists, as scientists. And they, they made the very unscientific assumption that because they weren't educating women, and of course women then weren't being educated, and therefore were not um, accomplished um, you know, middle-class uh, composers, playwrights, mathematicians, or what have you, astronomers, oh, then women are of an inter- inferior intellectual status to men, and that's just the natural way, they say they said, because well, they didn't teach them in the first place. You know, they didn't give them that education in the first place. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And they called that scientific observation by saying, well, yes, um, then women must be inferior because uh, clearly they're not achieving the same as men. Well, yeah, you, that's because you're not educating them. So based on that basis, they said, well, then, um, then men have the fullest intellectual faculties. And therefore, men should get the full gamut of, of um, liberal rights promised. Feminism was simply the argument that, and women too, hashtag me too, right? include us too in those rights. Yeah. Now, um, Simone de Beauvoir and others, some people say that they argued, uh, that these various feminists argued that, that um, men and women share a mind, uh, we have mind and therefore a mind does not have a gender. But that wasn't invented, That term wasn't invented by a woman, that actually was invented by a guy in uh, the 17th century, Francois Poulain de la Barre. He said the mind has no sex. And he first argued for the absolute equality behind between men and women, but the absolute identical roles for men and women, because he simply argued that the mind transcends the body. And so the mind is like free from any animalistic um, aspects of the human body that we might share with animals. And so uh, in, in this kind of realm where the mind is somehow detached from the body, all minds are equal. Right? That was the argument. That's how, and that's, that's from continental philosophy. I'm not going to get into the difference between Anglo-Saxon philosophy and continental philosophy. But suffice to say, this followed a, Euro, a continental European tradition. And um, England followed Anglo-Saxon kind of tradition of being more empiricist, even though they made unempirical arguments. But that's a long story, long discussion. Um, so the first wave of, you could say, feminism was um, liberal feminism, that women should have identical rights to men because in the West women couldn't own property and when they were married, their property that they, they came with went to their husbands. They couldn't open up a bank account without their husbands. Their husbands controlled all their finances, right, which was rather oppressive. And, you know, when they come to us and they say, you know, we have uh, rights for women, we, you know, you should learn from us and say, wait, 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 wait a second. Your backward past is—that's is, your past. Yeah? D- don't project it onto us. We didn't have that circumstance and situation with ourselves. Um, but over time, there were some develop- developments in, West, in the West, not just um, for women, but also for the working class, because the working class were not given the right to vote. Uh, only those who had property had the right to vote. Um, there's a re- there was an early—the li- early form of liberalism only gave it to proper- people that had property. Uh, but eventually, it got extended out, and of course then the idea that the government should do more than just protect you from the violence of each other, but the government should give you welfare, became the next evolution of liberalism, and it was called social liberalism, because the first form of liberalism led to so much um, suffering and exploitation, workers being exploited. If you get maimed in the factory, you're done. No one's going to employ you, no one's going to give you money. Right? Uh, if you can starve to death in London, on the streets of London. Even though it was a bustling town, if you were poor, unless you go to an almshouse, which is uh, usually run by a Christian foundation giving alms to the poor, you're going to die. No one's going to give you give you food. The government don't care about you getting getting food and what have you, right? So they noticed that this was, you know, like Charles Dickens talked about these kind of things quite a lot, became quite popular, and so they decided to they needed to um, change the first form of liberalism because it was too much concentration of wealth. If you think, was it 50% or 60% of the, of the um, wealth is owned by 1%, you think that's bad today. In the 1900s, it was 80% of the wealth was owned by 1%. Back then it was really crazy. They had to bring invent antitrust laws. These were things are invented. They're technically against liberalism. Technically, liberalism actually failed in the 19th century. They, what you're seeing today is the, is the patch 2.0. They just patched it. Right? And there are many people which actually say that it's not actually liberal anymore. But you, you know them as conservatives now. Conservatives are just old liberals, <laughs> liberals from the, the old version of it, old version of the matrix. <laughs> right? So social liberals said, you know what, women should have not just equal rights, but they should have equal opportunities to men. And therefore, um, we must make sure that workplaces um, hire uh, women as well as men and, uh, and so on and so forth. And then you had another stream of left-wing thinking, which has always been, it's been like the, I was going to call it the, the dark side. You know, like the, the Enlightenment produced the liberalism, and then it, it had a dark side to it. But technically speaking, it's all dark side. So there's a dark side and a darker side. <laughs> which was um, the kind of Marxist and socialist thoughts which were always at odds with its cousin, liberalism, and many Muslims become socialist, or some Marxists, though not today after the Soviet Union, but they join these movements which are from Marxist origins or, or at least socialist origins because they think the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So. When they discover that there are Western scholars also criticising liberalism, they think, oh, excellent, oh, I'll just ally with them. Or, you know, The critique of capitalism is popular in the West, but capitalism is just the economic system of liberalism. How is that if liberalism is the hegemonic ideology of the world? Well, that's because there's ichtalaf in the West. There's different Madahib. But the creeds of all these different maha- Madahib are all the same. Whether you're a socialist or a, mar- or a Marxist, which is a type of socialist, uh, whether you're a liberal, or whether you're a, a woke activist, or a post-Marxist, they all believe in the same aqidah of the, in the absolute sovereignty of the individual. They all follow that same aqidah. You know, just like you can be, it's like, it's like someone saying, "Go, oh, you know, um, uh, Islam is different from fo- following Abu, Abu Hanifa's um, madhab. Well, no, it's a madhab of Islam. The aqidah is from the same as any other of the, of the aqidah in the different schools of thought. The, the core, the core Akhida, that is. Um, so all these different socialists, Marxists, liberals, they all have the same core, core Akhida. They just have to about how you achieve this Akhida. That's it. So don't get confused by it, just because they, get, they are criticizing um, uh, capitalism or what have you. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah, we, we hate capitalism too. Well, like, hold your horses. Make an Islamic critique of cr- capitalism Don't use a socialist critique of capitalism Uh, and don't use a Marxist critique of capitalism, certainly not. Um, What are the political implications of feminism? Well, very simply is this, just even looking at the approach, they say, look, we're just talking about women's rights. What's wrong with talking about women's women's rights? Well, we all believe in rights for all insan, and we believe that women, as much as men have rights in Islam, defined by Islam, however, if you're looking at rights in a situation where in in marriages where there's a husband and a wife and they're relating to each other or or, uh, or a daughter and a father or whatever conditions that you're finding you're discussing is in it's not just one person in in these relationships it's two people in these relationships and if you don't talk about balancing out the mutual symbiotic relationship between any of these relationships you're not going to get justice if you just talk about only one side now Yes, there is a problem of domestic abuse. There is a problem of um, women being, um, being divorced and thrown out of the house and not being looked after in many parts of the world, not, non-Muslims and Muslims. Um, there's The problems which are shown through statistics, no one's disputing them. No one's arguing them. No one's saying, no, 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 women don't face any suffering or any challenges at all whatsoever. No one's saying that. The, the difference of opinion is how to solve those problems. That's the difference of opinion. We agree the problems are there, how do you solve them? And sometimes they use the counter argument saying that, oh, you just hate women, or you're a misogynist, or what have you, just to say. And it's, it's like a, mar- a communist or a Marxist, let's say, coming to you and they say, look the, look how poor people are suffering. He's like, yes, yes, we agree, there are poor people who are suffering, homeless people on the street. So, like, okay. Well then, we need to establish Marxism, a Marxist state, uh, which will solve these problems. No, 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 no. no, We don't want a Marxist state. An Islamic system would also would would, would address it, but address it better, because your Marxism would throw out the baby with the bathwater, because there are aspects of private property that you need to owe, you need to own. It's good for an, an economy. Profit incentive is very useful, even in industries. You need to retain that. But uh, Islam is for want of a better way to describe it, somewhere between capitalism and, and Marxism. But anyway, and, and the, then imagine the Marxist said, oh, you just hate poor people. You don't want to follow Marxism because you hate poor people. I said, no, I don't hate poor people. I acknowledge the same problem you're acknowledging. I just don't believe in your solution. I think it's gonna make it worse. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that is our resp- that's simply our response. And we should, in tandem, do this along with a da'wah in the Muslim world and to Muslims, because we're not here to simply just deflect criticisms. We're here to give solutions. And if you're not giving a solution from Islam, people are going to find it elsewhere. If you're not implementing the Islamic solutions, they're going to go elsewhere. Many um, parents, um, when I was growing up, uh, many parents, they, they were very worried about their children joining peaceful, but political Islamic activism, like, oh, no, you're going to get in trouble, or like, no, just focus on your career, focus on this, 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 this. And now, then their kids, their ki- children want to change the world, they, they, uh, they're not encumbered with the kind of uh, prejudices and biases that we later on accrue um, through getting, getting comfortable <laughs> in the society. So they want to change the world. So if you don't let them want to change the world with the Dean of Islam, they'll find another deen that will welcome them with open arms. Right. And, they'll, and it gives them, give them meaning. They think, oh, I'm doing something meaningful. Because, uh, and they'll follow this deen or the deen because you're not letting them follow the deen of Islam and implement it. And of course, there's other implications of feminism. It creates asabiyyah, but in this case, gender asabiyyah. It's a fight between women and men. Uh, and I've seen, I've seen um, how people actually argue it. I saw one. It was, it was meant to be a sense to be a Muslim sister, and she had, a, she was um, like m- making some invectives against me. And on her profile, she said, "My gender is my nation." Like, uh, I don't think, I don't think um, there are many women around the world that really don't care about you because you're not part of their nation. They don't see you as part of their nation just because you share the same chromosomes and and, uh, and, and, um, other aspects. So, if if feminism is adopted, um, the implications are that Islam itself will be viewed as um, uh, enshrining the domination of men. Even though there's aspects of Islam which require men to give to women their their wages, their their work for women, they support women, they they protect women, defend women, they um, feminists don't care about that. What they care about is when they see aspects of Islam that says that the woman has to, in a marriage, she has to, she has rights that she has. Um, uh, so her husband has rights upon her. Oh, that's oppressive. No individual should be beholden to any other individual. You see, that's it's liberal. It's a liberal basis. It's still a liberal basis. It's always a liberal basis. They view that as oppressive. When in Islam, the simple fact of the matter is that the man has things which the woman, um, he is beholden to the woman over, and the woman has, aspe- has rights which the, the man is beholden to her over. Oh. And the, there's no, even though there is, obviously there's choice, but it, there, it's obligation. There is obligation. They can choose to be not practicing Muslim, I suppose, but Islam obliges it. No. There's mutual responsibility there. And if you don't have mutual responsibility, then um, you, don't, you don't have anything in a marriage. How are you going to have a marriage then? There are times when, you, when you're married that you're not, you're not in the best of moods, right? And people say, i oh, only do things in marriage when you feel like it. Well, I say, all right, then, well, your husband might be a complete slob and not really care about because it, like, <laughs> it doesn't feel like caring by his wife today, and vice versa. Is that the basis behind which we um, should act as human beings? Just do things only if you feel like it or well, how does that make us different from animals basically right so um feminism isn't going to bring any um liberation it's only going to cause more conflict and it's going to open up a new front from conflict now it's going to open up a front of gender asabia and fighting and rancor between the two and unfortunately now what i've seen is that as there are some sisters and bro and male ally brothers who are um being feminist and are, co- and are touting it online and touting it in their, in their universities and wherever social spaces they go to. There's now um, brothers who are joining Western kind of conservative kind of mindset movements and there's a, like a, a, a proxy fight between Muslims in these two different Western mudhubs, got nothing to do with Islam, fighting each other, on, on uh, two bases that have nothing to do with Islam, it's, it's really surreal and tragic, actually. Uh, next slide, brother. So um, Marxism basically failed even before the Soviet Union was created. The many Marxists realized that Karl Marx predicted that the revolution, the revolution that he promised would happen would happen in Western Europe because it was more heavily industrialized. His formulas, predicted it would happen. No revolution happened in Western Europe. So many Marxists were disillusioned. They asked why is this happening? Why did we not see the promised victory of the working class emancipating themselves? And they tried to in, in essence find out what went wrong with Marxism. So they tweaked the theory. They studied Sigmund Freud, they studied Nietzsche, the existentialists, and They began to adopt a new idea or theory about it. They said that the working class, their minds have been controlled by the capitalist bourgeois state apparatus. They are deluded. And the only way to really liberate them is to liberate their minds from the control by the capitalist bourgeois. Now, Nietzsche argued that if there's no God, which he believed there was no God, he said that then morality doesn't exist. But then humans have to create morality. They have to create it. You have to by dictate. You dictate it yourself, what morality is. You make your own morality. But this then led to the next devolution in the West. Of the idea of um, structuralism and and post-structuralism, I'm not going to go into. I'm not going to wave too many jargons at you. I'm going to keep it nice and simple. The point that was the brief I was told, Abdullah, keep it simple. So, (laughs) I'll I'll try to. Um, But if there's also no God, by this argument, then the next kind of logical step they went is that all language is arbitrary. Meanings behind language is arbitrary. Who decided? what each word would mean. Who decided it? Just society. Who's society to tell you, the individual, what words mean or what words don't mean? Right. There's nothing higher than the individual. So how can society oppress you by telling you even what language, what the words are meant to mean? That was the next devolution of the term. Uh, next slide, please, brother. Um, so post marxism simply they came to the conclusion that if all minds and therefore all humans are equal, then everyone's um, interpretation of reality is also equal, everyone's opinion is also equal. Why is that? Because they simply said that if all minds are equal, then everyone's concluding thoughts will also be equal. All right. Because then who are you to, t- to say to me, those that I say, that your conclusion about the same facts is the right one? Right? If I have a different conclusion and we're both equal, then you have your truth, and I have my truth. That's where they got that from, just to summarize it, summarizing it, I suppose. Um, they even talked about, they called it the, the death of the author. They said that the, book, what, the books are not to be read to understand what the author intended behind the book. But what the reader finds useful or how the reader chooses to use the book, the meaning, that's the most important. Why? Because all minds are equal and who is the author to tell you what to do? If you want to use his writings or her writings in your own way, you can do it. They call it the death of the author. They said in order for the, the reader to be born, that the, the author must die, basically, metaphorically speaking. Um, but then, as Nietzsche said, and this doesn't only come from Nietzsche, it came from Hegel, but I'm not going to go into too much into these, these philosophers, but they also argued that, then why do people express themselves? If everyone has their own uh, opinions, why do they express their, their opinions? Why do they do that? And they say that's because it's the nature of humans to want to affect the outside world to have power to affect the outside world. So all expression of opinion is not trying to give nasiha, advice to people. It's about power. It's all about power. That's how they argued it. So they say that injustice is not based on an idea of right and wrong. Injustice is simply if one group or or person has more power Or more privileged to their opinions over any other group, that's wrong, because everyone's equal. Now, many Muslims they jump on this and they say, "Yeah, we use this against colonialism. We say colonialism is bad because the West told us what to do." Yeah, that's how they argue it. Whereas our argument is that well, the West had no right given to them to go around the world and tell them that other people they had superior values. That would be the the argument because their Aqidah was not true. It was, a, it was a false one and they have no justification for the Aqidah. Therefore, they, they lack the rights to be able to, to, to spread it. But you might think, OK, so what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this? OK, maybe then colonialism we will just argue it from an Islamic basis, uh, you know, why it's wrong. Well, this woke I- activism can be turned around against Muslims. And I've seen it and they say Islam is Arab colonialism. Or will they say that Islam, uh, Arabic is the language of the Quran and you have to all learn it to access it. That's Arab supremacy. I've seen them argue this. That's the natural conclusion they're going to go to because they're applying the same, the same tools. Yeah, you, you just thought they'd apply it only to the West. No, no, they'll they apply it to everybody. You're next. Not the, not the basis for our argument. They also argue against, like, they reject all grand narratives. It's a long story why they do that, but, but, but they are disillusioned with Marxism. Marxism had grand narratives. Capitalism has grand narratives. Uh, but guess what? Islam and the Quran has grand narratives. A, a big story that explains, you know, mankind, what it's here to do, the purpose of mankind, um, heaven and hell, those who become kuffar, those who be, um, you know, Muslim. These are, this is a grand narrative. Guess what? Uh, if they reject all grand narratives, they're going to reject Islam next. And any Muslim that adopts, woke activism, they're going to um, be rejecting Islam soon thereafter. The, uh, the argument is that in order to, for humans to be fully li- um, like liberated as individuals, it's not just you have to live under liberal government or what have you, because they criticize liberal governments um, for not, being, not giving enough real freedom. Why is that? Because they say that society is oppressing the individual by forcing the individual into roles, into particular roles. The only way to liberate yourself is, you should take control of your own narrative and identify yourself any way you want. Right? That's where the idea of identification, you identify as a seven-year-old girl and you could be a 60-year-old guy. Right? Well, that's your identification. Who, are, who is anyone else to say? that's wrong. You say, well, it's wrong because clearly they have not seven years old and it's like seven cycles of the, around the sun and the person's not a female. They say, ah, uh, we're not talking about the, the physical form. We're not talking about the amount of physical time. We're talking about the social idea of, what, uh, of, of a girl, of a seven-year-old girl and, a, um, and to be a woman. Those are things which are socially constructed and anyone can choose to identify any way they wish, Um, in society, and you have to respect that, otherwise you're committing an aggression against them, a microaggression. And in certain countries, (coughs) it might even be illegal to not recognize somebody's chosen pronouns. Then they say that if everyone's opinions are equal, um, and everyone's truth is equal, then no one can argue against your truth, And you say your truth is based on your own life experience and so they said everyone has their own lived experiences It's called standpoint epistemology Which simply means that your truth is your truth and and it's a truth and it's an equal amount It's equal truth as any other truth, but here's the thing they'll say that if you are not uh, If you do not have certain attributes Let's say if you're a white guy or you're a black guy or what have you uh, a white guy can't talk about people who are who are uh, um, like African-Canadian or some of like this. Um, so a, a, a white European-Canadian can't talk about a uh, black African-Canadian, they'll say, because you don't know their lived experience as a black African-Canadian, so you just you can't talk about them. And they might say, well, but I'm not talking about what it is, uh, my experience living as an African-Canadian. I'm, I've got some statistics here which are based on surveys, which are based on facts, like, no, 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 no but you, because you haven't lived it, you can't talk about a lived experience. Well, I'm not talking about lived experience, I'm just talking about some statistics here, right? you know, which is a bit, a bit more objective, I suppose. But that's why they would argue against that. But they'd also say to that um, um, African Canadian that you're a guy, you can't talk about women, because you're not a woman. And, but you say, well, I'm not saying I know what it feels like to be a woman. I'm simply saying that, for example, if women are pregnant, they should have the hospitals should make sure they they are looked after and you know and um, given medical attention. They'll say, well, they won't usually complain about that, but technically they could say, you can't talk about women, though, because you're not a woman. Like, right? but surely. I understand the concept of being pregnant and requiring medical attention and care and so on. I I don't have to be pregnant myself to know that. Yeah? Um, But they'll say, no, no, but you can't talk about it. Although they don't mind um, uh, a kind of feminists talking about, who are women, talking about men. (laughs) Though they seem to make an exception for that. But they'll say, it's OK for those who are being oppressed, the oppressed minority, to speak about the oppressors. That's how they would argue it. Um, there's other things like cultural appropriation where they say that um, even using aspects of other people's culture uh, without giving it the same respect that, it was, that it was possessed by the original culture is um, appropriation. They especially don't like people of dominant cultures taking or using aspects of, of minority cultures. They say that's dominating them by simply taking... You're like stealing from their culture by using it yourself or using like take their dress or food. I mean, technically speaking, I suppose, if I go into a Somali restaurant and enjoy Somali food, I'm committing cultural appropriation, perhaps. <laughs> right? um, because well, they might be able to argue, well, you're not um, Somali, so why are you enjoying their culture? It's like, well, because it's tasty. So, <laughs> so they say identity is a social construct. To liberate individuals, everyone's self-identifications must be respected. And all lifestyle choices are not just um, legal, but they'd say are morally valid. Right, So, if you ever denounce, let's say, same-sex intercourse, or even extramarital intercourse or, um, or premarital intercourse, they'll say that you can't do that. And so, you might think, well, even premarital intercourse, they would, have a, they would say, they say you can't condemn that. Yeah, they call it slut-shaming You've Heard that term. Yeah, they call it slut-shaming. You're shaming somebody for indulging in, their, in a lifestyle choice concerning their, their sexuality. You're making them feel bad for it. By, Telling them that it's haram. Right. So many. Why do you think uh, many Muslims um, jump on this? And, and you might be thinking, but well, why would they jump on this? Why would they they adopt this? Because the woke, the woke activism of, the, of these post Marxists, they offer Muslims to say we we will protect you against the the right wing. You know, because you Muslims identify as Muslim, so we protect that identification because it's a self identification, or a, a group identity, which they say is socially constructed, but it's being used to, um, to uh, oppress you and discriminate against you, basically. So many Muslims go, oh, thank you, left-wing guys, thank you, woke activists, yeah, we'll go under your umbrella. What do you mean? What's this price tag? <laughs> right. And the price tag is, they're happy to defend you having the label Muslim, just as long as there's no content behind that label. You're, you're an empty jar. You can keep the label on the jar, but there's nothing. Should be nothing inside it, because if, whatever you believe it, that is from Islam will contradict their um, their their worldview and their beliefs and their ideas. And many Muslims, again, will leave Islam after adopting this system, because it's they. W- if you read it, their books, they, it's argued very persuasively. If you read any book, if you read liberalism, if you read the if, even if you read conservative books and you don't know much about the deen of Islam or, or how Islam has an alternative or how it has a superior argument to all these things, you could be persuaded by these books. Many Muslims ask me, Abdullah, can you recommend a book for me to read to study political philosophy and so on? I'm like, I'm, I'm very reticent to suggest it because you, maybe if you don't understand Islam enough, you might think, well, that makes sense. If you read Karl Marx's books, it, it makes sense if you just read it. But then when you kind of zoom out of it, you think, oh, wait a second. <laughs> That's, wait a second. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, so anyway, so what I'll say, brothers and sisters, is we have to be aware of these um, modern ideologies that cause conflict. It, they will cause conflict in the Muslim community, and they certainly cause conflict a- amongst non-Muslims. Right? Culture From culture wars in the United States of America to actual wars in... Ethiopia, in Ukraine, um, and even just tensions, even in Canada between French speakers and English speakers, um, as well as racism, as well as fascism, as well as a whole bunch of these issues, and popularism. um, These are ideologies that do not create unity, but create discord. So we must instead eschew those things and follow the creator of the universe who, behind all things, is the one unity behind all things. He created all things and through him, we can be unified on the truth because he is Al Haq. There's no multiple truths. Yeah. There's only one truth. Okay. Barakallahu